Beware of collywobbles in the tummy. Food for wiggles is poison for humans. <laughs> to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Welcome back to Talking Beasts. This is Glumpuddle. And I'm Jim Fan. And that's how we win. We are continuing our fresh look at BBC's 1990 television miniseries adaptation of The Silver Chair. And in this episode, we get an iconic actor's take on my favorite character in the entire series. So very much looking forward to discussing that. Episode two begins with Jill and Scrub arriving at the Parliament of Cartoon Owl Eyes. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> and we flash back to Prince Rillian's disappearance, including the scene where Caspian considers killing Drinian. Uh, then the owls take the kids to Puddleglum, And the next day, the travelers set off and encounter a dragon which breathes fire at them until Scrub runs over and whispers something in its ear to calm it. So Scrub the Dragon Whisperer. <laughs> the cliffhanger ending is the giants throwing rocks at the travelers, but we'll have to tune in next week and find out if Puddleglum was actually squashed. So sorry to leave you all in suspense. So I think the best and worst kind of uh, structure we had last time worked really well. Let's kick things off. Let's start with, uh, oh, let's see, who wants to go first? Ladies first. Okay, I can go first. I would say the best for me was the introduction of Puddleglum. Good morning, guests. I say good, but it'll probably turn to rain, or maybe snow, or fog, or thunder. I dare say you didn't get any sleep. But we did. We had a very restful night. Ah. I see you're trying to make the best of a bad job. We had a very restful night. Excuse me, but we didn't quite catch your name. My name is Puddle Glum. You're sure to forget it. He's such a unique character in all of the Narnian books that it is very fun to see it come to life, even though it's a little bit, you know, I maybe not quite what, like when I was rewatching it back, I was like, a little bit maybe slightly different than what I had pictured in my head but it's still really good but it's just it's it's a really interesting kind of like portrayal and it's just a fun character I feel like quite a lot of the episode there's not a lot happening so it's more just getting to know Puddle Glum and then you are getting a bit of the backstory during the Parliament of Owls but there's like they just start out by the end of the episode and they are just encountering their first like issue their first problem you know, when, when you think about it very little happens in the episode they well we do, we do get that we get all that backstory but as far as the, of Prince Rillian and how he disappeared but as far as what they actually accomplish they go to the Parliament of Owls and they go to Puddle Glum's hut and they leave and that's it so that's about as much ground as they cover. Yeah. Okay. And there's the uh, the the faux pancaking, the Wizard of Oz ending, as I like to call it. <laughs> you just are you see, a good marshmallow or a bad marshmallow? <laughs> are you a good marsh? Are are you a good giant or a bad giant? You've squashed. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, does anything stand out to you as the worst in this episode? I didn't love a lot of the 
dialogue, particularly between Eustace and Jill. You have a sword. I have a sword. And you and I, boy, will have a bow and arrows. Pole can carry a knife. I don't see why I shouldn't have a bow and arrows, too. What's the matter? You have a knife. I don't want a knife. I want a bow and arrows. No, stop complaining. You have a knife. I'm not complaining. I want a bow and arrows. Look, arrow. there's only two bows and arrows. There's no difference between you and ah, me. Ah, quarreling already? That's what happens on adventures. No, like, I understand, like, you want to get the point across that they're already starting to, like, bicker a little bit and just, like, be kids. But it was a little over the top. I like the idea of it, and it makes sense. I mean, I, I would have liked if they had explained why Jill can't just have a bow and arrow. There's a perfectly logical reason for that, that Scrub, it'd be very easy to say, oh, but he had a little bit of experience with that on the Dawn Shredder. That makes perfect sense. Um, but they don't. They're, Puddle Glum's just like, nope. You're a girl or whatever. He doesn't say that. But <laughs> Sexism reigns supreme. He doesn't, he, do, he, do, he doesn't say that, but uh, it's just like, nope, Jill, you get a knife. Just, it's just the way it is, you know? It, 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 Narnia is just so realistic sometimes, you know? But uh, anyway, um, but yeah, the, the what killed it for me was there's a lot of ways Jill could respond to this injustice instead of just, I don't want a knife. I want a bow and arrow. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. But I did think it was funny when Puddle Glum came out and said, oh, we're bickering already. I, I, that, I did actually laugh out loud. I thought Tom Baker yeah. did a good job with that. Yeah, <laughs> that's all I got. Okay. <laughs> oh, how about you, Rillian? What was your favorite thing in this episode? I kind of just liked uh, the pacing. Again, I keep talking about the pacing. It's so weird. Uh, I just, I felt like it kind of, especially with the Marshwiggles, it kind of settled in. I felt like it really developed the character of Puddle Glum. I didn't feel like it was rushed. I didn't feel like it was slow. You're right. Not a whole lot happens in the episode. It's not that much time. But I just kind of liked that it, it was settling into the story and really telling the story. And I felt like I was experiencing the story of the sil silver chair. I didn't feel like here's someone's fan film of it. You know, I felt like I was actually experiencing part of the story. Like the market scene is a perfect example. You know, it's like, oh, boom, boom we got to have him in the market. Boom, boom. Have to say this line, say this line. It's checklist. It's just kind of a, a highlight reel of things you remember from the book, or is this feels more like, yeah, they're actually telling the story. Yes. And I, uh, I appreciated that. One of the little bonuses I got. So when I grew up watching uh, the TV that my parents got, my parents found someone I think was giving it away, or maybe they got it at a discount. It was a really old TV. But this is, so we're talking about like, 1998 1999 right so every tv is old right but it was about probably a i don't remember 40 inch screen which is huge back then it was mm -hmm. huge oh. uh -huh. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember it might have been bigger than that it was enormous it was like yeah probably about 40 maybe a 42 to 48 inch screen which means it weighed about 40 hundred pounds yes it was like this giant it was a two-piece thing had a, a screen on top and then it would project off a mirror on the bottom it would fold out project onto the mirror but it was it was very cool to us but it was very very dark so watching it i thought that the scene with the parliament of owls was like just a bunch of floating eyes and here i actually saw that they had like cut out little like puppet head shapes like <laughs> so like oh they actually did like cut out little <laughs> owls it wasn't like the looney tunes where they like they turn the lights off and it's just the eyes bobbing around like oh little details i never noticed before who are they what are they mr glimfeather mr glimfeather eustace 
Hello to you, too. Of course we're owls. And this, my dear humans, is a special emergency meeting of the great Parliament of Owls. It was very odd. Like, okay, so we have the, we have the like the we have the costume owls, and then we have like a different breed of owl, which is like the cutout paper. No, I thought they were they were just cartoons, weren't they? Yeah, they're just animated. It looks like to me. Maybe they're animated, but they had little shapes. I I, I, I I could be wrong, but you no, know, you're definitely right that it would show the what looked to me like the animated dots, and then it would cut to the real owls, and it was like, hey, why why aren't Glenfeather's eyes glowing? Um, it, it raises questions. That's all I'm trying to say. It's just different species of owls. Yeah. Like, oh, that yeah, makes yeah, sense. There you go. So That's there, fine. Like, you know, hoot owls and yeah, different species, different breeds of owls. The, the scientific accuracy of this show is just <laughs> astonishing. It's oh. Okay. They wanted Narnia to feel real. <laughs> you know because that's, that's what to woo owl because you know owls say to woo so there you go sure just like wolves say roar <laughs> I, I, and i mean i did actually like that that's that scene and i like that um older owl that tells the story i like his voice yeah i like his it voice was a very lot. evident when they like Dude, you did the voiceover was just like into a microphone, and then here he is no there's no longer no exactly no I I, I the voice I mean I, on on one hand I can under I can completely understand why Jill fell asleep listening to the voice, but it works and I think his voice gives the backstory of Rillian's mother dying some real pathos. Then came the fateful day when Prince Rillian returned again to that accursed glade. From that hour, no trace of Rillian was ever found. Neither hat, nor cloak, nor anything else. Rillian, you have searched for the prince for days. I fear I may never see my son again. I wish that they had just done more of just his narration, because some of the... Like, I don't know. I'll I'll render a final verdict on the actor for Rillian uh, later on. But boy, the bangs are just unfortunate. <laughs> uh, I thought he was good, though, the actor. Drinian, I guess, is okay. But the Caspian, it's like, it's no emotion. I just, I'm not feeling anything. And it's really obvious in a moment where I'm supposed to be feeling something and I'm just not. And Sure, sure. Um I did. Uh, you were just. I think you were just talking about the scene where um, Caspian thinks about killing Drinian, which is a, fa- a a great, very emotional scene in the book where Caspian says, "You know, I've, I've lost my son and my wife." It's a great line. Should I lose my friend as well? A couple things. Um, now you don't need that scene in terms of the plot. It's not like it's absolutely essential, but man, everybody remembers that moment. And here, the the unfortunate thing is, it just doesn't make sense. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's I think it's beautifully shot. Drinian says to Caspian, you know, he just says, "By my silence, I've destroyed your son." And then Caspian just draws his sword. <laughs> yeah, Whereas, I, like, I, half, like, like halfway out, it, yeah. it doesn't even make sense. Like, wait, wait, when Caspian would ask a few more questions in the book, Drinian, of course, explains how. He knew everything and decided that he didn't want to be a blab. But what they needed is they needed the, the actor for Caspian to go, what, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a couple moments like that. Um, uh, even when Rillian tells Drinian, oh, I have seen there the most beautiful thing ever. And he's like, take me there tomorrow. Let's go look at it. Like, Why wouldn't he say, what's the beautiful thing? Um, Tell first- me more. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I have to say probably the the thing that jumped out at me the most of that whole thing that I just didn't like. Okay, I'm not saying... 
I can't remember her name. For, for the the white witch actress and the hag actress and who's like uh, Barbara Kellerman. I, I had, Barbara Kellerman. Okay, I get they must have had some kind of contract thing where like, okay, Warwick, you get to play this character in multiple episodes, different characters in multiple episodes. Barbara, you're well, by play contract you mean budgetary restrictions? Yes. She's not. There must have been some kind of contract thing because like, why they had to use her again? I thought the way they did her coming out from behind the tree and then she disappears. That, that was, thought that was really that was that was really effective. I thought that was genuinely kind of spooky. Kind of a cougar vibe here, though the way they've got it set up. <laughs> it kind it kind of is. I like it. It's like I feel like it's that way in the book too. Yeah, I generally don't like the artificial flashback, meaning let's just flashback without it seeming motivated. But it, it worked okay generally. And I, I mean, like the I I did feel a little bit of the emotion when she died, and I could feel Rillian's anger a little bit. It's just unfortunate that that Caspian Drinian moment, which is such a heartbreaking moment in the book, it's really hard to do in a movie, I think. Because mm-hmm. it, it's just this quick little aside between characters we're barely going to see again later. It's also showing a version of Caspian that as it's different when you're watching a film or a TV show where it's like your your mind is thinking, uh, I intellectually know this is supposed to be the same character I bond with in an earlier film. But it's a different actor and everything. It's different in a book where you bond with a character and then the book just says, He's 70 years older, and you're just saying, oh, okay, well, it's the same character. Yeah. I think there's just something about a book's ability to have a quick little aside about something that is not super important to the plot. A book has more of an ability to go on a a brief tangent, whereas in a movie, there's this expectation that if I'm seeing it, it's because there's this kind of unspoken contract between movie and in viewer if i'm seeing it it's because it's important and for some reason yeah, i sense that more in a movie than in a book and that's why it's so hard to do this scene justice and which is so unfortunate because it's such a beautiful scene uh in the book but i appreciate they tried i, I appreciate that they did they did feel like they had to have it in there in one form or another even if they didn't really pull it off i, I it it did tell the story it didn't give me any kind of emotional oh i hope they succeed in finding the lost prince which is really what you're needing in the book, it's like, oh, this makes sense. This is why Aslan needed them to sent them here. You know, that's a really good point. I think, like, whereas in Don Treader, and even the book, I, I personally never really cared that much about the Seven Lords. It's more about the the chance to go to the world's end. But yeah, when I read the Silver Chair book, um, I feel the heartbreak. I feel the despair of Rillian being gone, and I, uh, I I'm invested in finding Rillian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'll just say my best and worst here. My favorite thing about this episode is Tom Baker's Puddle Glum. <laughs> My least favorite thing in this episode is Tom Baker's Puddle Glum. <laughs> I had a feeling it was going there. <laughs> yes. Let me start with, I really mean both of those equally. Uh, let me start with the positive. This is, you know, Puddle Glum is my favorite character. He's just one of my favorite things created by the hand of man is the character of Puddle Glum. Uh, so Tom Baker is a great actor and I loved getting to know the character. I thought he was really well developed. I, I especially love tracking Scrubs growing frustration with him. And David Thwaites did a really good job with that. Kind is one thing they're not. You all see. Now look here. I don't believe the whole thing could be half as bad as you're making out. Just as the beds in the wigwam were hard or the firewood was wet. I don't think Aslan would ever have sent us here if there was as little chance as all that. That's it, boy. Put a brave face on it. All we have to worry about is our tempers. And all our hard times we're going to have to go through together won't do to lose our tempers, you know. Otherwise, we'll finish up 
knifing each other. I shouldn't wonder. It was fun how they took time revealing him. It was a little bit awkward when the owls first arrive and drop off Jill and Scrub. Right. And Pelagum's holding the lantern and his back is to the camera. That was a little bit awkward, but the, the, the proper reveal when he's fishing was really fun. You're, you're waiting to see, you know, who he is and what he looks like and all that. And a uh, quick note, when they, but when they drop off Jill and Scrub and the owls don't explain anything, it's just, uh, here's Jill and Scrub. <laughs> see ya. Um, whereas in the book, <laughs> in the book, we know, it wouldn't Puddle Glum be like, uh, so why are you guys here and what are we doing? Whereas in the book, we know that they explain it. Yeah. But what it is, is in the book, Jill is half asleep and it's, it's all very blurry and so that's how Lewis kind of motivates. Oh, they don't really quite see Puddle Glum, you know, and she's half asleep as the owls are explaining everything. But that's the kind of thing tricky to do in a movie, yeah. I think. Just uh, And it's all in the book. It's very much from Jill's point of view. I would call her the main character of the Silver Chair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas they haven't really done that yeah. in the movie here. Anyway, Puddle Glum. He made me laugh out loud multiple times. I love when he has his... He's introduced with his back to the camera, just as the book described, just like my favorite Pauline Baines illustration shows. And then he turns around, almost whacks Eustace in the face with the fishing pole. That was really funny. (laughs) I like when he's talking about what the other Wiggles say. And he kind of looks around to make sure no one's listening, even though clearly there's nobody around for miles. I thought thought that was really funny. And I like the bit where Eustace says, uh, there's a little change from the book where they don't find out about the giants until they've already set out. Uh, on their journey. Um, Cody pointed that out in the Talking Beats Facebook group. Uh, and Eustace says, maybe they're nice giants. And Puddle Glum just kind of nods like, mm. <laughs> yeah. mm, okay. It's like, yeah, it's like, let's, let, let's, if, what, whatever helps you sleep at night. Okay, whatever. I just, I yeah, it's exactly exactly. Uh, you know what? Let's go with that. Him being so positive and look and just, you know, maybe it'll be okay. <laughs> that, that was a great, uh, s- subtle performance there. Um, so, uh, I, as a character in this TV series, uh, I enjoyed Tom Baker's Puddle Glum, and I anticipate continuing to enjoy it. That said, he's also my worst thing because he's, I think, fundamentally not the Puddle Glum from the book. And to des- I think the best way to describe the difference between book Puddle Glum and BBC Puddle Glum is a change they made. I think a small but significant change to one of his first lines, the, the way he's introduced. In the book, great line, Puddle Glum says, Puddle Glum is my name, but it doesn't matter if you forget it. I can always tell you again. Besides being funny, great introduction for that character because he assumes the worst. He then puts a bold face on it. He assumes they're going to forget his name. But he says, but it's okay, because I can always tell you again. So assuming the worst, putting a bold face on it. That's Puddle Glum, summed up right there at the very beginning. Good job, C.S. Lewis. BBC changed it to, my name is Puddle Glum. You are sure to forget it. So BBC, and I think this is a comment on the character as a whole, in that line, BBC, Tom Baker, they only give us the assuming the worst. They don't give us the putting a bold face on it. I think that's generally true of the character in this episode. We just see him being very down and assuming the worst. I don't think we see him trying to be courageous in the face of that, those uh, very dour assumptions. It's me. I imagine Puddle Glum making these dour predictions and kind of smiling. Like, that's just the way it is. He may assume the worst, but he's determined to put a bold face on it. Mm. So I think it's easy to oversimplify Puddle Glum and say, oh yeah, he's just Eeyore. He's just a pessimist. He's always assuming. Everybody, everybody remembers Oh yeah, Puddle Glum assumes the worst. What I remember more is 
Puddleglum's always putting a bold face on things. I think that you've hit on something, and we could probably talk about it later on with the with the speech and everything. But it, it the BBC version does kind of give you almost like a character arc where the character kind of like rallies, you know, and, and which is not the case in the book. He's he's just the same as he always was. Yeah. But um, I mean, you learn more about him, but uh, you know, and there is some of. I don't know. There is some of like, oh, that's that's the spirit. Yes, we'll you know we'll continue to do this. You know, put a bold mm-hmm. face on it. Sure, they do include some of that, but I do agree that Puddleglum is just a wet blanket. Is kind of the overwhelming sentiment you get mm-hmm. from yeah from the BBC, and I think that I mean this is pretty widely watched, and I do think that the BBC Puddleglum uh, kind of. Does affect how people remember uh, the character Puddle Glum? Yeah, it might. Because Tom Baker is such an iconic actor, obviously. He played Doctor Who. It's really hard to sell that he's not a human in the BBC, and it never really comes across. It doesn't. Yeah. It's it like the the Marsh Wiggles are they're the people who live in marshes. <laughs> but, uh, they, they're yeah, shoes like the people who live in marshes. It's almost like that's the only kind of idea. Yeah. I mean, would it really have cost that much to make his hair look a little more reedy like it's described in the book or to make his face look a little bit more green or make his hands look a little bit more frog like you know what he just looks dirty yeah he, he, he looks, does he, he looks dirty yeah kind of the only thing you get <laughs> yeah, yeah would it have true. been that hard to make him look just a, a little less human or or even just some dialogue kind of setting it up yeah like, they don't, they don't even really second. say it you're right yeah mm, yeah they, i mean there's one line where they say we'll take him to the marsh wiggles and yeah, yeah, like, okay, there are people who live in marshes, I guess. And then you kind of see some TPs in the background. Very different. Yeah. They don't set it up with anything like, oh, there's there's more of you. You like yeah. he mentions them and you're like, oh, there's I guess yeah. there's more of them. And there's a lot of things in there like that where, oh, I wish they'd spent more time on this and that. But I also I agree the pacing is good. So probably if they had included all that stuff, I'd be sitting here saying, eh, the pacing was a little slow. Um mm. so yeah. give and take there. I appreciate really you brought up the fact that we're, we're ultimately we're heading towards the speech he's going to make to the lady of the green curdle, where he does absolutely choose to put the best possible face he can on the bleakest situation imaginable. And they're trying to give Puddleglum more of a, maybe they're just trying to give him more of a journey, more of an arc. That'd be giving the BBC filmmakers the benefit of the doubt. that They haven't just completely misunderstood the character in the book, um, but they're trying to give him a, a journey. So I kind of accept this as, oh, this is just an interpretation. Maybe it could work for this version of the story. At the end of the day, we just got to serve the story. It's not just about nailing my favorite characters and all these details. We just got to serve the overall story. Uh, I cannot forgive Puddleglum being such a coward crossing the stream. See? No bridge. Of course there's no bridge. I'm sure we'll be able to cross it on foot. Oh. See, that wasn't difficult at all. It's not even like a stream. <laughs> it's like a creek bed. It was like uh There's like there's like an inch of water in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But no, I mean, obviously, th- that's the point. That's, that's, that's supposed to be the comedy of it is obviously it's just a dumb little stream. But that could not be any further from the Puddle Glum in the book. Puddle Glum, like, he is 
doing, he's very wisely in the book predicting doom about going to Harfang, saying bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. But yeah. once they decided to do it, he's the one that knocks on the uh, on the door and says, hey, we're here. Because Puddle Glow, while he might often predict the worst, is no coward. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you cannot be courageous without knowing there's something to fear. Sometimes, though, they take a character and they they want to introduce a laugh, which you can do, but you got to be careful how you do it because you can inadvertently change, you know. Massacre the character. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, we saw, I mean, they did the same thing kind of to like characters like Ron Weasley in the movies or you know, Gimli and Lord of the Rings. And so it's, it, it's very easy for uh, writers to do. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of, I'm not saying you can't do a character arc, but there's a right and a wrong way to do a character arc. And a lot of times I think that it's, it's a very, I see this all the time in, in adaptations of books. Well, I think, I think the key is, I mean, Jill has a very clear arc in this story. Yes. Yes. Aslan doesn't have an arc. Right, but it, Puddle Glum is one of the constants in this story. You know, an example that comes to mind is Wally, one of my favorite, one of my top ten favorite movies. Wally doesn't change at all. Everyone around Wally changes throughout the story, and mm, Wally yeah. is, is kind of this force that's changing everything. And I think it's partially through Puddle Glum's example that Jill is going to learn to trust again. Yeah, you learn. That's a good example because you learn more about Wally. You know, even even through the eyes of other characters, one of my my favorite moment probably in in Wally is where Eva is or it's Eva, Eva. you know, Eva, she's <laughs> watching the video feed, little montage of Wally trying to take care of her and protect her. It's all the same stuff you saw. It's the exact same. It's no new information, but it's a new perspective. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, he's actually selfless you see that you know even though there's no new information it's all the stuff you already saw and no dialogue and there's no dialogue but yeah it's like that's a good example of how you can you know and they should have done it that way with puddle glum here yeah so it's an arc in the sense that maybe our perception of that character is changing right you're learning more about the character that is very true to puddle glum i think the first time through the story you mainly think of him as eeyore but jill says it very well at the end of the book she says you you seem like a wet a wet blanket but you're actually as brave as a lion and that's my experience, at least, reading the book. The first time, Puddlegum seems like an Eeyore. You read it again, and you realize um, just how courageous he is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, we cannot uh, ignore... I, I really want to see what you guys thought about the moment where they encounter a dragon, and Scrub the Dragon Whisperer comes over and whispers something in its ear or whatever, and it flies away. And, of course, Puddlegum and Jill are completely stunned. From Jill's perspective, and Pelagum's like, what? But of course, we've read Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We know that he was a dragon, so it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, well, so, interesting addition, not in the book at all. What do you guys think? Well, they had to find some way to reuse that costume, get the money to work. <laughs> like, I there mean, they go. spent the money on it. Like, they might as well use That's... it again. <laughs> really, and over here with the real answers. <laughs> um, I didn't hate. I didn't mind it particularly. I thought it was unnecessary. Like it was, it wasn't needed, but it also was a nice little callback to be like, oh, hey guys, remember this is Eustace from that, you know, Don Treader. Remember he was a dragon. So, you know, a way to, as Rillian said, get a, get a good, reuse a good prop <laughs> and remind you of a nice character moment. I have a love hate relationship with this scene. I hate it in that it just seemed like, 
this would never happen. <laughs> He's not just gonna like walk up and be the dragon whisperer. That's not yeah. a thing. It doesn't make much sense, even with him being a dragon. Well, what Scrub said was, "I knew it wouldn't hurt us." So he, Scrub could read something in the dragon's body language or something yeah. that said, "Oh, it, it's actually uh, not trying to hurt us" or something like that. I, I guess that's that's the conceit, right? It, it it just seemed out of the blue, and I I didn't it didn't really make sense to me. What I did like is it does kind of establish because one of the things that it's so hard to establish in any movie, and none of the movies or TV shows have really done it well. They've had a line in this where he's uses his flying on top of you know Glim Feather, and he almost cuts his head off. You know, oh, he's like, oh, he's, the air here, I'm feeling stronger again. Let me just quickly describe that scene for our listeners. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it, it's they they leave the Parliament of Owls and it's showing this you know side shot of Jill and Scrub riding on the owls and Scrub is waving his sword around. Here, young human, don't rock the boat. They gave me this sword at Care Paravel, and I don't intend to travel without it. Scrub, you idiot, you'll fall off. Oh no, I won't. I'm back in Narnia, and the air here. I've forgotten how good it is. I feel stronger every minute. Hold on, big ass. Down we go. I like the idea of getting the idea of the air of Narnia and Scrub is so glad to be back. It's a nice idea. Yeah, it's a very big thing in the books because the children come back and it's like their bodies and minds kind of it's like remember firsthand all these experiences and things they learned and and the like almost like their muscle memory comes back right and it's not just oh yeah this is something i vaguely remember from a year ago it's like no no it's like it, it's almost like the time thing kind of affects their bodies and like they become older in spirit and almost in looks a little bit can't really do that in a movie or tv show this scene kind of accomplished a lot of that like it kind of like sets uses back in this oh well, that's right he's not just a school kid he's kind of you know back in Narnia with his with knowledge he had and things i like that it kind of did that so in, kind of in concept effort. yeah in concept mm -hmm. it kind of established oh he's got this extra experience and knowledge kind of better than him swinging a sword around, yeah right? <laughs> i think it'd be more it'd be more interesting if they follow the book and we're um telling this more from jill's perspective because jill doesn't have a complete understanding of what exactly scrub did so I think Jill seeing him, um, like, and he knows how to do certain things, like he can start a fire, he knows how to shoot a bow and arrow, and and even 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 just things like, which is not in the book, but how uh, Scrub somehow knew how to calm that dragon. And I, I wish if the story had been told more from Jill's perspective, like almost every scene in the book is kind of through her eyes, or we know what, how she's thinking and feeling. If they followed that, she could have had this moment of, how did he get that dragon uh, to go away? You know, there's even a little bit of. Uh, in the book, insecurity with Jill that Scrub's been here before, and she has it. There's kind of this, you know, rivalry that goes um, throughout. Just little things like, you know, Scrub knew the word Marshwiggle, and she didn't. Um, there's little things like that throughout the book. Um, so I think the idea of her seeing like, wow, Scrub is getting stronger, or sensing that in some way, mm -hmm. I think is makes sense and is consistent with the book. Uh, yeah, it is a little silly how close he comes to chopping that owl's head off. And of course, the effects aren't great. <laughs> but it's also weird because, like, this doesn't look like someone who just knows how to use a sword. And they keep, like, everyone kind of, I get it's a hard thing to sell. It's also was made kind of worse in the Walden movies where, like, oh, I guess Susan is instantly good at bows and arrows and can, like, bullseye everything. And Lucy's, like, throwing knives. And then in the in Prince Caspian, she can throw an arrow. <laughs> yeah. It's very impressive. <laughs> 
Okay, I think the last major thing that has to be discussed, I think, is the rock giants, which I thought worked very effective, I thought. I think they did a pretty good job making them look like, are those people, are those rocks? I guess if you haven't read the book, maybe you wouldn't quite see it. When they come to, when they come alive, it really is, I think, really scary and re re really startling. I, I thought that scene worked pretty well, better than I kind of thought it might. And like, uh, I did like Baker's performance as Puddle Glum during that scene. I thought like, okay, this this is kind of like, the puddle glum from from the book. Uh, I felt yeah. like, like nope, nope, nope. <laughs> just go, just, just yeah. go. You know, I liked, I did like that. And then they're they're all screaming. He's just like, stop, stop, just stop moving. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit like the T Rex. It's like just don't move a muscle. And everyone starts start screaming. Oh. Yeah. I I thought it was hilarious when the giants start throwing rocks, and it's you literally just like inches away, and they're just like, oh, oh, uh -huh. and just like slightly startled. I'm like, go somewhere else. <laughs> Well, pa Paulo Glum is trying to play it cool and say, you know, and of, course they, of course they explain all this in the book more, where it's, well, we don't want to look like people running away, and there's even the explanation of where they're not trying to hit us, they're playing a game, and there's a great line in the book where uh, I think Eustace says, are they trying to hit us? And Paulo Glum says, no, no, we'd be a good deal safer if they were. Yeah, um, <laughs> they're really um, so bad. Uh, Cody had a comment in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Cody commented, it's weird that the giants have gray skin when none of the other giants in BBC's Narnia do, but I guess otherwise it would be unbelievable for Jill to, to mistake them for rocks, so maybe we should blame C.S. Lewis. <laughs> so there is the question of, I suppose they were a different kind of giants. They're a different later. breed of giant. That, yeah. that, that explanation fits everything. Again, scientific accuracy. Very, very, very important. For, that's, that's why I read Narnia. I don't know about you guys. Absolutely. Okay, so I think that is it for episode two. Oh, well, there's the cliffhanger ending, of course, uh, which we already <laughs> talked about. But uh, we'll find out next week if Puddle Glum actually got crushed or not. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. That's episode two of BBT Silver Chair. We'll talk about episode three next time. And I cannot remember at all how far the next episode goes. I have no recollection. I, I don't know. So yeah, pre presumably the next one will start maybe with the, the bridge, the giant's bridge, and they'll meet. Lady of the Green Curdle and the Black Knight on the road. Uh, I would say they'll probably make it to Harfang, but not... I'll say they'll probably make it to Harfang, but not out of Harfang would be my prediction. This is episode three out of six. What do you guys think? How, how far is the next one going to go? I I honestly, I like, I remember the, the general direction of the story. But what's your but prediction? I think they'll make it to Harfang, but not in Harfang. Okay. Oh, so I think they will make it inside, but not outside. You're saying they won't even make it inside. Really? And what do you think? I'm trying to remember. I don't think that there's enough material because they got to meet. They got to meet the Lady of the Green Kirtle in the night. You got to find the bridge. You got to almost fall from the bridge. I'm trying to. I think yeah, they'll make it inside Harfang, but I don't think they'll they'll make it out. So what will the cliffhanger ending be? The door shutting behind them. Yeah, something like that, maybe. I mean, I think yeah. you, you can't have the cookbook. I think you can't make it that. I don't think they can make it quite that far. Yeah, I don't think so. I'd be shocked. We'll find out. So if you want, we can keep talking. What do you guys think, listeners? Should we do an entire episode talking about where we think it will end? Or should we just watch the episode <laughs> and talk about it afterwards? <laughs> there you go. Tune in next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast. Visit NarniaWeb.com to join our community and stay up to date on the latest Narnia news. Please post a comment or question below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Special thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our Knights of Narnia Web. Until next time, further up and further in. Mm -hmm.